This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back to the beginning of season five. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. We're going to start today with a little experiment that we can do together right now, wherever you are. Imagine you're in Paris at night. The streetlights, the Ferris wheel by the Louvre, carts selling crepes. A young couple walks along the Seine arm in arm. They walk slowly, chatting and taking pictures. People in the distance sit in cafes eating cheese and, you know, frog legs. How do you feel right now? What is your mood? How do you feel about the story? Are these two people happy, sad, in love, or pretending to be in love? We don't really know that much just yet, do we? Okay, so let's add a little music. The couple turns down a side street so they can have more privacy. He puts his arm around her and pulls her close. It's a chilly night. They can see their breath in front of them. She looks deep into his eyes. Who is this man beside her? The music added a whole new dimension, right? Now we're thinking about romance and the thrill of new love. Let's take that same description, delivered the same way, and play different music. The couple turns down a side street so they can have more privacy. He puts his arm around her and pulls her close. It's a chilly night. They can see their breath in front of them. She looks deep into his eyes. Who is this man beside her? Okay, what changed? Everything, right? The music made the whole thing sound super creepy, like someone was going to jump out and murder them, or like he had some kind of dark secret. The first time I played that, I bet you assumed the couple was in love. The second, well, was totally different. The only thing that changed was the music. This is the mystery of juxtaposition. We take one thing and put it next to something else, and suddenly, the meaning changes. Think about a young woman swimming in the ocean. It's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, and we add a little music, and we're pretty sure she's about to get eaten by a shark. We humans do this juxtaposition thing all the time. We take two things and put them together, like how the smell of pine trees might make you think of Christmas, or a certain taste brings back a favorite memory. Juxtaposition can be helpful. It can remind us of specific memories, let us know if we can trust our surroundings, but it can also make things kind of confusing for us. Think about some of the buzzwords that we use in politics today. What comes to mind when you think of the word justice? When someone says that they want to fight for justice, what do you think? 
Without knowing anything else about the specific issue or person, what do you immediately come to? What kind of person wants to see more justice? In Christianity, the word justice is often used in liberal circles, right? Now, is justice a purely liberal concept? No. But because it's often juxtaposed with liberal causes today, justice becomes associated with liberalism. Now, what about freedom? It's often talked about in conservative circles. Is there anything inherently conservative about freedom? No. So why is it that when a Christian talks about helping the poor, paying a fair wage, or fighting greed, that many of us automatically assume that that person is liberal? Not just politically, but also potentially theologically. While capitalism, wealth, and freedom are often juxtaposed with conservative theology. Well, it turns out that the association of liberal theology with an intense interest in poor and working people goes back at least to the 1800s, when liberal theologies flooded into the United States at the same time that strikes took off in big cities, when the global financial system was hounded by boom and bust cycles, mass production treated humans like they were disposable, and big corporations like Standard Oil operated under Darwinian principles of natural selection. This season, we're looking at the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States. We've already established that fundamentalism, at least for our purposes, is militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelicalism. Today, we're going to look at just one part of that, the anti-modernist piece. How did the reaction to new theologies, specifically modernism, lead us to the kind of division we have today? How did guys like William Jennings Bryan walk a tightrope that totally plays with our assumptions about Bible-believing Christians? Is it possible to both love the God of the Bible and love our neighbors? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. Liberalism is not a monolith. I, I think when you look at it historically, there are a variety of different liberal theologies that have emerged. This is Chris Evans. He's a professor of history and Christianity and Methodist studies at Boston University and the author of Do Everything, a biography of suffragette Francis Willard. Fundamentalism can be understood as a reaction against something. And that something is this broad term, liberal theology, specifically in the form of modernism. In our quest to understand Christian fundamentalism this season, we have to understand its nemesis. So how did we get modernist theology? Liberal theology tended to come out of denominations and Protestant churches that were, were anti-Calvinist. That's right. Modernist theology is also a reaction to something else. That thing is Calvinism. So much of history and theology is a reaction to something else. 
which is a reaction to something else, which is a reaction to something else. Most people associate Calvinism with today, the the doctrine of predestination, the idea, that, again, that certain people are going to be born and God is predetermined whether they're going to go to heaven or hell. Predestination is a big part of Calvinism. It says God is the one who chooses who will be saved and who will not. For hundreds of years, we pretty much believe that it is God who initiates salvation. But in the late 1500s, another idea was posited. The term that is often used by historians is Arminianism. Arminianism for Jacob Arminius. They emphasize the idea that God's grace was a free gift, that you had the ability to accept or reject that gift, and more importantly, the idea that your life and what you did with your faith mattered in the world. Because it was your choice to do so. Your actions were not predetermined. We started this season talking about two major players in Calvinism, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Those guys preached the gospel of predestination, that it is God who ordained that you be saved. A little later, there were guys like Charles Finney who spread Arminianism, that you make a personal choice to follow Jesus. Two very different ideas. Both became popular in the United States. Another Arminian preacher was John Wesley, founder of Methodism. Wesley was not just focused on evangelism, though he did plenty of that too. He was also really interested in how Christians could impact society. Wesley was very invested in areas related to prison reform, health care, improving the condition of poor people in, in British society, but also, again, the, the strong emphasis in, the, in the, this Wesleyan-Arminian tradition that God's grace was available to all people, regardless of social status. So whether you were rich or poor, black or white, male or female, you were entitled to, this, to receiving this grace. There was tension between the two groups. Calvinists on one side, Arminians on the other. Does God choose our ultimate destiny, or do we? After the Civil War, liberals saw a change coming with conservative evangelicals. Conservatives started to hone in on this one idea. The emphasis on premillennialism. In the 1870s, many Christians were still post-millennialist. They believed the course of human history was on an upward trajectory. Life was going to get better and better, and then Jesus would return. But conservative strains of the faith were increasingly premillennialist. The idea that the world was going to get really bad, and then Jesus would come back. But that wasn't the only sticking point for liberals. There was also... Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. This grand unified theory of history that also spells out how the world is going to end. According to them, Christians are spared the worst of it by a secret rapture, and then it all goes up in flames. I did episodes about each of these concepts a few weeks ago if you want to go back and get more information. If nothing else, remember that premillennialist dispensationalists believe that the future of human history trends downward, toward disaster. This didn't sit well with some. 
liberals saw this as a pessimistic view of history, and they rejected it. I say this all the time to a lot of my liberal students. Look, dispensationalism in its own way is very rational. It, it reads scripture in a way that can make a lot of sense to someone and in some way offers a degree of certainty that is perhaps missing from more liberal strands of Christianity, which sometimes can be very vague and sometimes not necessarily focused on kind of common objectives of what does mission mean, what does ministry mean, what does evangelism mean, and what does social salvation mean in the context of of a world that it grows increasingly complex in in the context of the 21st century. The 1873 Evangelical Alliance meeting was like a premonition of a coming battle. Delegates worried that new theologies were headed to the U.S. from Europe, especially Germany. And guess what? They actually were. As Eastern European immigrants flooded into the country at the end of the 1800s, they brought their theologies with them, many of them threats to conservative theology. There were multiple schools of liberal thought. For the sake of time, we'll discuss just two. Tübingen was one center of liberal theology. Tübingen is a town in Germany, and it was ground zero for what is called higher criticism. Essentially, they don't believe in things like the miraculous stories of the Bible. Jesus turning water into wine? Nine. Healing the blind? Nine. The loaves and fishes? Nine. Nine to all of it. Higher criticism teaches that the stories in the Bible are morally instructive. And some of you may think, well, that sounds great. But if the stories are just to teach morals, then they aren't really about spiritual growth. It's about being a better person, not necessarily growing closer to God. And who is Jesus? Jesus, to those in higher criticism, is basically just a moral teacher, not the son of God. Again, note the focus on morality. That is going to be important later. Another key word to watch for, justice. Jesus was, as one writer put it, perfectly just, moral, and loving. God sent Christ to earth to serve as an example of ethical perfection. They were cool with Jesus' ethics, just not his divinity. These guys also questioned the authorship of some of Paul's letters in the New Testament. They liked some and didn't like a whole bunch of others. So that was Tübingen. Then there was the University of Berlin. Which was founded by Friedrich Schleiermacher. And who was a really influential guy. Schleiermacher has oftentimes been seen as kind of the primary architect of not only German liberalism, but also the way that it translated into the American church, writing a book on systematic theology called The Christian Faith in 1821. Schleiermacher helped popularize the idea that Christianity is a historic faith. And I should say that the word historic gets used a lot here. Because of that, it gets a bit murky. Because Schleiermacher was selective in his ideas of what he felt was historic. So when it came to really crucial moments in Jesus' life, as recorded in the Gospels, he simply said they weren't historical. Because they involved miracles. 
Jesus's virgin birth. Nine. The resurrection. Nine. Schleiermacher was selective about which eras of Christ's life he'd accept. He liked just the part between Jesus's baptism and before his arrest. And he posited that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. No death on the cross, no need for a resurrection. This gets really tangled because some liberal theologians say that they are on the hunt for the historic Jesus. Which is confusing because not only do the Bible accounts tell of Jesus being crucified, so do early history texts like those of Flavius Josephus who wrote about Jesus just a few decades after his death. Even those who doubt some of Josephus' writing don't doubt the part about the crucifixion. Therefore, the quest for the historic Jesus can be seen as code for removing the miracles, picking and choosing what to believe, and discarding the rest. To be fair, Chris made a good point about this. To varying degrees, we all pick and choose what we will or won't believe in the Bible. These guys are just more public about it. Schleiermacher is seen by some as the father of liberal theology. His main contributions seem to focus around feeling. In his opinion, religion can be experiential and isn't necessarily about dogma. Instead, it's about an absolute dependence on God. He also sparked a movement to study the Bible scientifically, reading it as a historic document, something that even theologically orthodox pastors still do today, though it leads them to different conclusions. It's worth noting that these German schools had some bad habits as well. There was sadly, especially in a lot of these early 19th century liberal German voices, a strong tone of anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, the same could be said about some American evangelical movements as well. That's two of the main schools of theology that came out of Germany. And broadly speaking, they decided to take a different tack than conservatives walking away from the kind of Pauline emphasis on Jesus's resurrection and the way that Paul tends to see the reality of Christ's death as this sacrifice that opens up these different possibilities to uh, a new life through Christ, to an emphasis on sort of, again, the, the historicity of Jesus, the, the sense that when Jesus died, his sacrifice was, for lack of a better term, a kind of moral sacrifice. It was a means by which people were pointed in the direction of a, of a new way of living their lives, really predicated on ethics and, and in some way on reform. This is a key to understanding the early days of liberalism in the United States and why we're in the place we are today. Liberals and conservatives can look at the same event and see two very different things. Three men are being crucified, one on either side of Jesus, nails driven through their flesh, anchoring them to wood, a painful way to die, and humiliating as you hang naked and the crowd taunts you. Your lungs fill with fluid so that it's more like drowning than bleeding out. Two of the men are criminals. The third is guilty of nothing at all. He has lived a perfect life. A theological conservative looks at this event and sees Christ dying for our sins, 
making a way for humanity to be reconciled to God, Jesus taking our place. This is the kind of thing that Paul writes about in books like Romans. There's also evidence that Jesus acted as an example for us, teaching us how to live, but for certain kinds of theological conservatives, the salvation aspect is key. For a modernist, well, this gets complicated because there are so many views. Maybe you're like Schleiermacher and you think that this event never happened in the first place. Or you're like many others who see Jesus' crucifixion as a moral example. A man who fought for justice, uh uh-huh, there's that word, who taught in his time that we should turn the other cheek and love our neighbors, bless those who curse us. That is, generally, a liberal view of the cross. Not looking at the supernatural significance of what Christ did, but the moral example. One event, two very different interpretations. So far, we've mostly spoken about the more academic vision of liberal theology. But that is not the only kind. Liberal theology tended to kind of move in two predominant directions in the late 19th century. There, there was one tradition of liberalism that was very rationalistic. This is the stuff we just covered, popular in schools, seminary, and academia. The liberal theology of journals and conferences. And then you have uh, kind of more popular strands of liberalism. Like this thing called the social gospel. The social gospel is a big part of our story this season. William Jennings Bryan is often associated with this movement. Though, of course, he doesn't necessarily fit neatly into it. For Brian, Christianity had a specific purpose. Yeah, Christianity is about morality and applying your morality to society. This is Michael Kazin, author of a biography of William Jennings Bryan called A Godly Hero. And for him, uh, doing that was to ask the question, you know, what would Jesus do? A phrase that came from a wildly popular book called In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. You've probably heard of what would Jesus do, right? That phrase pretty well encapsulates the social gospel. Again, it's focused on morality. The question encourages Christians to try to live their lives in a Christ-like manner. Conservative critics sometimes harp on WWJD, saying that our focus shouldn't be on what Jesus would do, but what he has already done by dying on the cross. Of course, the reality that we can easily do both is lost on many of us. In the book, Sheldon imagined a small town. In this prosperous little burb, a poor man shows up, asking for a job and a place to live. I need a job and a place to live. The people of the town give him the cold shoulder, and then he dies right there in the church. The people of the town are shocked by their cold hearts, and their pastor gives them a challenge. Before you do anything, ask yourself, What would Jesus do? Notice the focus on morality. If this book were interested in, say, evangelism, it would maybe take the opportunity to say, That man died, and we don't know if he was a follower of Christ. It would talk about the man's soul. Instead, it hones in on the morality of the audience. This is the social gospel in a nutshell. It's this movement that sometimes lays claim to folks like William Jennings Bryan, three-time Democratic nominee for president, secretary of state, and prosecutor for the Scopes Monkey Trial. You know, for Bryan, 
a moral society was one that you know followed the example of Jesus was one that you know saw ordinary people as uh, just as worthy of you know having a, a good and, and, and happy life as uh, as the rich uh, and the powerful people secular or otherwise who felt were acting in moral ways for example he goes to Europe in between his presidential campaigns and he praises the social democrats the socialists of Germany and the labor party of Britain for the way he felt they were presenting a sort of moral agenda for society, helping working people, uh, having uh, government-run uh, industries, municipally owned railroads, and this kind of thing. And for him, this was Christian politics. He called it applied Christianity, which is the term other social gospels used as well. This is the guy who would later be called Mr. Fundamentalist. One of the confounding things about him is that it's sometimes difficult to nail down his theology, because some people I interviewed saw him as a fundamentalist others as a social gospeler, some as a conservative, and others as a liberal. He defied all of our preconceived labels throughout his life. To some, the social gospel meant a focus on the things of this earth, taking care of the poor and bettering society at the expense of preaching the gospel. Brian didn't fit that mold exactly. Unlike some of the liberal theologians I already discussed, he believed in the divinity of Christ his resurrection, the infallibility of scripture, and the virgin birth. But he didn't fit the mold of your standard touring preacher either. His speeches tend to focus on social issues and not converting people. He referred to this as applied Christianity. Even though he later claimed the term fundamentalist, he was a post-millennialist, meaning he didn't think the world was going to end in cataclysm, but that humanity could improve the world, ushering in the return of Christ, which in the 1870s was still the predominant view in American Christianity, even as it seemed, at least financially, like the world really was going to end. We'll have that story after this short break. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. In 1893, the American financial system went crazy. The catalyst was the collapse of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad Company and the National Cordage Company. That's right, a company that made rope and twine helped to bring down the financial markets. They were two of the largest employers in the United States. Some 8,000 businesses closed as a result, 156 railroads and 400 banks, taking people's savings with them. This was well before the FDIC. One in five Americans was out of work. The Pullman Palace Car Company, another big employer, made cuts, slashing pay by 33 and a third percent. 
Pullman made train cars and built company towns where employees lived and purchased all their goods from the company store. Want some bread? You had to buy it from Pullman. Milk? You guessed it. Housing? You bet. But Pullman made a crucial mistake. Even though it slashed workers' pay, they didn't lower rents or the price of goods in their stores. This had a big impact on real people. Like a 19-year-old woman named Jenny Curtis who upholstered the fine cabins of the Pullman train cars. She was paid just $9 to $10 for two weeks' work of which she paid back to the company $7 for board and 2 to $3 for rent. In other words, literally all of her income came from the company and then went right back to Pullman. That is no way to live. Understandably, workers were incensed. The American Railway Union took notice, as did their president, Eugene Debs. Strikers were killed and others injured. Train cars burned. Rail traffic dramatically impacted. The ARU and Eugene Debs were brought to trial for slowing down the U.S. mail. And the man who represented them in that trial was Clarence Darrow, the same guy who would, decades later, represent John Scopes in the Scopes trial the trial of the century that hoped to settle if parents could block schools from teaching evolution. Darrow was the lawyer of lost causes. At this point, Darrow had an unlikely ally, William Jennings Bryan. Bryan, at that time, fought against the trusts as well as the gold standard, which made it harder for countries to recover from economic disasters. Bryan was this unique blend. A Democrat, and again, Democrats were basically the conservative party in the 1890s, a popular speaker, and a Christian, often tied to the social gospel, a reformer and a populist, a combination that bought him a lot of friends and a lot of enemies. The Pullman strike didn't happen out of the blue. After the Civil War, cities grew at a rapid pace. They were dirty, nasty places to live with humans mingling with unsafe machines, soot, and animal waste. It was a mess. But people, especially liberals, took notice. Here again is Chris Evans. A lot of traditions of of liberal theology that emerged after the Civil War emphasized personalism. This tradition, again, that has a lot of deep-seated roots in both Protestant as well as Catholic thinking, but it emphasizes the idea that, that the individual is supreme. The individual is, is of inherent worth, and the preservation and bringing out what is most sacred in the individual is really the end of Christianity. Social gospel theology said people should not be treated like cattle, but with respect. This personalism is different from the rugged capitalist individualism so many of us are used to. Liberal theology recognized the value in every individual. By the 1880s and 1890s, a lot of people in the social gospel movement were drawing attention to the vast urban poverty that was overrunning the United States. The fact that you had wealth inequalities, you had cities teeming with immigrants. Long hours, dangerous working conditions, nasty housing problems, and disease. You have a very, very strong sense that 
society is really neglecting the vast majority of those who are who are suffering. Again, there was the academic vision of liberalism that was all about theory and knowledge. The social gospel was something else, applied liberalism. This is where it really showed itself, addressing the big social questions of the day. And for a lot of social gospel figures, such as Walter Rauschenbusch, Christianity was rooted in this theme of social salvation, that what faith should do is it not only should be concerned about the state of the individual soul, but pay attention to the social and economic conditions that are really clamping down on that individual's ability to live their life to the fullest. According to Chris Evans, the goal of the social gospel was to demonstrate that Christianity means being concerned about the forces at work in society, which is why you see so many social gospelers involved in unions, ending child labor, or in the case of William Jennings Bryan, getting the United States out of the purely gold standard, helping small farmers, and championing antitrust legislation. But there was a problem with that. Again, we humans are terrible at keeping two ideas in our heads at once. There was a lot of good to be done in society. Like the eight-hour workday? Sure you do. Are you glad that children can't work in factories now? Of course. Should there be protections for employees? Yes. However, these things were championed by those with liberal theology. Not entirely, of course, there are exceptions. But in general, as premillennialism took over, it was increasingly liberal Christians who were on the forefront of societal concerns, while conservatives focused on saving souls. The juxtaposition of liberalism and social welfare made it harder for conservatives to get on board with social programs. Because if they did, it would seem like they were siding with liberals. To stand with workers against bad working conditions might make one look like a socialist. To decry oppressive monetary policy might sound anti-capitalist. So theologically conservative Christians were squeezed into a narrow focus on evangelism and not necessarily social welfare. You can see the origin of a powerful wedge. If Christian liberals with their historic Jesus were helping working people get an honest wage, then conservatives would come to see labor questions as antithetical to conservative theology. Because some liberals rejected the miracle of Jesus' birth and resurrection, then collective bargaining must be anti-Jesus. And once socialism and the ideas of Marx and Engels, who were anti-religion, came into mix, the lines were drawn. The modernist fundamentalist debate didn't really heat up until the 1910s. We haven't gotten there yet. But I wanted to show you how it began. Introduce the cast of characters and the reality that fundamentalism was a reaction to modernist theology which was a reaction to Calvinism, which was a reaction to something that was a reaction to something else. So much of our story, so much of where we are today, is due to reactionary responses. But now we live in a world where it is socially uncomfortable to be both theologically orthodox while also looking out for those less fortunate than ourselves. There's a story from the Bible that comes back to me time and time again. When Jesus was asked which commandment is the greatest, instead of giving them one, he gave them two. Love the Lord your God 
and love your neighbors. It turns out that we humans are generally good at one or the other, but rarely both. Either we will hold God and the Bible in high esteem, or we will look after our neighbors over ourselves. But we struggle to do both. Conservative theology is obsessed with conversion, while liberal theology focuses on morality. Our challenge today and in this series is not simply to condemn the other side, whatever that happens to be for you, but to see that these either-or scenarios don't really work. It doesn't matter how theologically sound you are if you only care about yourself. Doing good doesn't make you a Christian if you don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. The task of every believer is to both love God and love our neighbors, despite how culturally charged it can be to do that. That is the line that William Jennings Bryan would try to walk. Mr. Fundamentalist himself took some of the concepts of the social gospel, mixed it with his beliefs in the biblical Jesus, and took those ideas to the street. In an attempt to help farmers and low-wage workers, he would invoke Jesus on the cross in order to stake his claim in one of the most controversial topics of his day, the gold standard. It is an amazing story, one that I'll tell you in an upcoming episode where I'm joined by Jacob Goldstein, co-host of the Planet Money podcast, one of my personal radio heroes. In the meantime, take time to reflect. Do you both love the Lord and love your neighbor? What would it look like for Christians to do both? In the future, when people think of Christians, will they juxtapose us with capitalism, socialism, Bible thumping, or buffet theology, where we can choose our own adventure? Or will they juxtapose us with giving, love, and truth? What buzzwords do you look for when you're having a conversation with friends and family? Are there ways that you don't quite fit the specific fundamentalist or modernist categories? Send me an email at trucepodcast at yahoo.com and let me know. You can also leave me a message on social media at at trucepodcast. Special thanks to Chris Evans from Boston University. He's the author of Do Everything, a biography of suffragette Francis Willard. Truce is a listener-supported show. Visit trucepodcast.com slash donate for more information. And remember to share and subscribe to the show. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.